Hi, you're listening to the best bits of Breakfasters with Nat, Daniel and Mon for the week ending Friday the 6th of October. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, you'll hear us talk leaf blowers and salad spinners and how those two things somehow intertwine. And Fee writes in for a book review, this time talking about Tom Lake by Anne Patchett. University law dropout and comedian Tom Ballard fills us in on his Melbourne Fringe show, Yes, No, a comedy lecture. And Tan Trong, aka the fruit nerd, shares all his tips and tricks for choosing the best fruit and veg. For feature creatures travelling Twitches, Sean Dooley reports on Birds of Tokyo and a complex co- Coffee order gets a rewrite. Melbourne's own Triple R. I had one of those moments yesterday where you think of something that you need and want, and then you go, wait a minute, does this exist? Oh. Yeah. And then you're like, if it doesn't, it should. Um, but it most definitely does. But it's just you've kind of reframed it slightly in your mind or how you've arrived at that thing. So you think it's maybe you've come up with an invention for five or ten minutes. You're like, well, this is it. I'm going to Shark Tank. Like, for example, of like, say, if you're putting socks on and you're like, if only I had socks for my hands. Mm. And you forgot about gloves for a minute. (laughs) Or you're putting the washing in the washing machine and you're like, God, if only I could spin the water off something like salad leaves. Ah, oh, I've never thought that. That's a salad spinner. Yeah, yeah, go yeah, on, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you go, ah, oh, we do have it. We do have it. Also, Maybe I didn't discover salad, salad spinners until I was in my 20s. Oh, yeah. And I had a housemate whose sister came to visit and she was like, where's your salad spinner? <gasps> yeah. And I was like, we don't have one. She's like, you, you, you must. You must. How do you feel about the salad spinner now? I love it. Yeah. It's... All my life growing up with my parents putting wet lettuce in a tea towel and slamming it on the bench. Ah, never again. Never, never again. again. And in a tea lettuce. towel. <sighs> Anything that combines greens and centrifugal force. <laughs> It's a real winner in the Sabir house. No, just my house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My parents don't like those silly gadgets. Oh, that, and it's like kind of a, doubles as a workout. The oh, I don't. Um, mine's a yeah. I've got to wind it round with my hand. Yeah, anyway, this is not. No, well, this is exactly it. I mean, I'm happy to lean into all of this. Well, I had I had one of these moments yesterday, and I was I thought maybe for about five minutes. I didn't think I'd invented something, but I thought I'd stumbled across a real gap in the market. Um, so just saying that, but I, and I'm curious to know how aware of the product you are or people are, because I feel like I definitely didn't know it existed or you don't hear about it, but I walked past someone who was leaf blowing. We hear about leaf blowers all the time. We hear them. We act, we literally hear them. Mm. They're a nuisance and they're just moving the problem along really, aren't they? They're just blowing leaves Mm. into the gutter or into the waterways or into someone else's yard. But I was like, why are we not talking about a leaf vacuum? I knew that's where it was going. Yeah, I know. It's obvious. But, I mean, we're not hearing about them. Then I was like, are leaf vacuums for the garden a thing? And even if they are, they are clearly, mm. they're definitely a thing. But, but not, not common. Not common. I don't, I've never really seen one out in the wild. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, me neither. And I think it's because, well, I'm glad I'm not alone in this mm. because I think a lot of the leaf vacuums are leaf blowers with a reverse cycle. But I am like, there's definitely room, I think, for like, so why aren't they more common? Why? Because people love leaf blowers, blowing them around. Yeah, then what? You suck up the leaves, then you got another problem on your hands. You suck up the leaves, and it goes into a catcher like when you mow the lawn, and then you put that in your compost. Yeah, and I'm thinking, here's what I'd do: I'd suck up the leaves, and then they go into the bag, and there's like a built-in like chipper, like a chipper. But for, I mean, it wouldn't take much. Like a mulch leaves. to make it into mulch. Exactly, and then that goes through, and that's great for your compost to absorb. The moisture. Oh, yeah, in your garden beds. We've got to get our garden beds ready for tomatoes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not a gardener, but if, if you are dispersing the leaves, is there anything necessarily wrong with – it would be like arsenic, you know. You, it's poisonous to have a lot of it at once, but if you have a little bit of it – A little bit of leaf blowing? Yeah. If, as, or, a or, as a treat. As a treat. As a treat. Blowing the leaves around and it's like, okay, well, now you've got one leaf every 10 square metres as yeah. opposed to 50 leaves every one square metre. Mm. I guess you're – you're yeah, you're clearing an area for use, presumably, then dispersing them to somewhere where it doesn't matter. Like you're clearing a path and they go off onto the side. It doesn't matter. No one's walking. 
Is that right? I guess that so, was yeah. Oh, look, I've yeah. never used one. And look, I'm I'm sure there uh, is reason there's a system for it and I'm sure there are leaf blower enthusiasts out there. An interesting, I like this. And I've, it's a it's a combination of your washing machine and the salad spinner idea. Someone texted in and said, I remember for one big function, Yes. Um, my mum used the washing machine to spin dry the lettuce. <gasps> what? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of salad. That I wonder how many people she was making salad for. And I'd be really curious to know what would kind it, of lettuce that is. I'm thinking but would that it heat up. Well, that would be an iceberg. I'm guessing you'd need a really kind of robust leaf. Yeah, you're not to putting, go through the machine. You're not putting butter lettuce in the washing machine. Anyway, so that's revolting. <laughs> I mean, I'm, there are, I know people who don't use microwaves. They don't have one in the house. And yeah. then the idea that you would chuck. Is this for real? I mean, unless they're just lying to get on the text line, which sounds – I don't I don't I think, think our texters do that. I love Not that. Not triple R subscribers. Um, and you could put the dressing in the washing machine where the detergent goes. <laughs> you could do a mix, a bit of olive oil, a bit of seeded mustard. So put it in and then it's dry. I mean, look, if it works for, for completely oh, look, wet now, clothes, I don't mind it. You're right. It's a, if it's a big function. Mm. I think that's yeah. an in- important caveat. So yeah. there's like five heads of lettuce in there. Yeah. 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 It's not dinner for one. No, no, no. <laughs> just putting in a single leaf, uh, really racking up those energy bills <laughs> it, for your dry lettuce. It can be stressful. It um, can. Hosting, cooking for a lot of people. And the salad is one of those things that you really do just want to get right. It's those little details like rinsing the mm, leaves. You don't want soggy leaves like I grew up with. Yeah, God. No, God. Um, someone said that they do exist. Leaf vacuum exists, but it's easier to make it someone else's problem. Oh, okay. Sure, sure, sure. But it's like, I mean, wouldn't that be fantastic? It's just so commonplace. Oh, you a vacuum for the house. I just don't know why we're not talking more about vacuums for gardens. Well, according to the text line, most leaf blowers actually can do both. Yeah, I know. But it's just the way it's marketed. Yeah. It's all about the blowing, but it's not about... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we could have a retrospective Shark Tank. Oh, yeah. So you come in and you invent something that's already been invented. (laughs) But in a better way. (laughs) But in a better way. (laughs) And a longer way. Give it a cooler name. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I know. I did find myself after this feeling a bit deflated. I was like, okay, how did I – not deflated, but I was like, yeah, why didn't I know about the vacuums? Mm. And I did – Google Shark Tank failures, so that, <laughs> that that'll be some reading for today. There's a listener that asks, can, "Can't you run over the leaves with your mower?" Now, mm. I I remember mowing over a garden hose, oh. and it got it was believed that that was intentional, so I was never asked to do it again. Oh, oh like you did oh. it on purpose? You go, oh, I guess yes. I just can't do the mowing. But there was no nefarious motive; it was just pure incompetence. Oh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I aren't people worried going over a, a big pile of leaves that there's going to be something? It's like, oh, there's, my, you know, my yeah. toy that I... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it clanks through. Mm. Or it's kind of satisfying, that sound, when you, like, go when you through something. destroy something. Yes, no, no, no. <laughs> Maybe I'm hooked on the vacuum thing because I was just thinking, my mum's got an electric mower. So you have to wrangle a huge extension cord oh, oh. from the it's house. It's not cordless. It's not cordless. <laughs> it's incredibly inconvenient and it feels like you are vacuuming. And so it's this constant dance of making sure you don't go over the cord. Oh, no. Um, well, this is why I'd be a terrible judge on Shark Tank because if mm. someone brought that to me, I'd be like, this looks like a Darwin Award. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this looks like an absolutely, it's going to accelerate a million deaths and I cannot be associated uh, with the lawsuits. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere near that. Mm. Yeah, so. Uh, there is some clarification. Okay, great. Uh, iceberg. It was iceberg. Mm. Fantastic. And it was the only lettuce in the 70s. Oh. <laughs> and it was a top loader, so it wasn't locked Which in for the whole cycle. Point. So you can imagine putting that 60 minutes later. <laughs> yeah, that is good. I know. love this clarification. This uh, is fantastic. And leaf blowers on reverse eventually block the motor in reverse. Okay, so what what I'm hearing what is that there's room experts. in the market. There's room in the market for a salad spinning washing machine. Yeah, maybe there could be something kind of in between a salad spinner and a washing machine, like what you have in the change rooms at the pool. You know, they rinse your bathers? No. I don't oh. swim much. Okay. Well, it's <laughs> Is that like it playing golf where you put the ball in and it cleans it? Oh. I have never used that, but I imagine, yeah, it's incredibly satisfying. You push the lid down and it goes... Jerk. I'm putting... 
30 uh, seconds. Communal oh. knicker washer. <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> Triple R. writer inspiration fee rights here to <laughs> review books morning fee good morning good morning it's um i got blown in here by the wind and i cannot wait to talk um about a book that's set almost entirely in summer so it's a mm. very summer novel for you like all yesterday yes yes <laughs> like yesterday in in in, in october um It is Tom Lake by Anne Patchett. Um, It's out by Bloomsbury. And I've actually reviewed um, a non-fiction book by Anne Patchett before on Breakfasters, but I thought it'd be really interesting um, to review her most recent fiction release. Um, She's been writing for years and years. She had a book, um, The Dutch House, which was very, very popular. I think it won a number of accolades. Um, She's also a book lover. She owns a bookshop in America um, and she's very, very clear that you know she's not just um for writing she just loves books she loves reading and you start to get this sense of her love of that craft through her work so this is a novel about Lara and her family so Lara is recalling a youthful love affair um, over a summer with an actor who went on to become very, very famous. He's not Robert Redford or Sam Shepard, but he's like Robert Redford meets Sam Shepard 70s vibe, you know. You, know, you give him one, you, you pick it up. Yeah. So she's recounting this story to her three daughters while they pick the annual cherry harvest on their farm. So Lara's in her late 50s, early 60s. Her three daughters are in their late teens, early 20s, and she's been married to her husband, Joe, for a really long time, who is also present, uh, really, really present through this novel. They all know how the story ends, obviously, because she's been married to Joe for so long and, you know, deeply loves Joe. It's very clear um, how she feels about him and her family and this story is just a summer fling the readers also all know how this is going to end because it's very clear how it does but somehow I even with this knowledge I was just utterly captivated by this book and how this was all going to play out because I it was you know it's like that joke about you go see the movie The Titanic, oh, how's it going to end? Or, or um, that film Sully, you know, even mm. though I knew that he landed the plane, I was still like, what's going to happen? Um, and so this is like the gentle summer version of that, if that makes sense. So it just all comes down to her skill with prose. She's able to just create this really cinematic imagery, particularly when she's covering so many different time frames. So... It's it's um, there's kind of three main sets of, of time that you experience in the book. So there's the past where Lara is telling it, but it's unclear as to whether she's speaking to her daughters or the readers. And then there's like a a little pre or post flashback time where the daughters are like hassling her, asking questions, responding to the behaviour of people in the past, and then you know making Lara be accountable for those sorts of acts um for example there's um the understudy lara's um understudy in a play is a woman of color and um the fact that she's an understudy was like quite progressive at the time and her family's like that's not progressive and you know so there's like also um discussions of of race and uh gender that are really present comparing the past to now and then there's this present self, which is Lara's internal monologue, internal monologue reflecting on the past, how her perspective on these events has changed with time, and how her own perspective has changed, and or they're all overlapping, and it's just kind of it moves back and forth really easily, and the daughters act like this narrative Greek chorus so they provide space for the readers to react because all three of them have different kinds of reactions to different events at one point Lara in the past starts smoking and we're all jolted out of that memory by the three daughters cutting loose and having a go at her for you would have lost your mind if I had have dared you know like Mm. so you have this really strong interaction between all of them um and each part of them is incredibly captivating so as a teenager Lara performed this play 
This local play, Our Town, and is seen by a talent scout, screen tested LA, stars in the film, stars in a film, sorry, and then travels to Michigan to the Tom Lake to spend the summer acting in local theatre productions. And apparently it's quite common, or at least it was in the 60s and 70s, to spend your summer somewhere acting on the theatre stage, somewhere regional, before you go back to the city with more experience and, you know, you've got more skills there. So Lara travels to the lake to star last minute in another production of Our Town. That's The lead has dropped out. She knows lines can jump straight in and it's here that she meets Peter Duke who is playing her father in the play and then their relationship begins and it just feels like one of those did, did you ever have those that experience of it'd be like a Sunday afternoon and your mum might be watching the telly and it'd be like the bridges of Madison County or Steel Magnolias or Fried Green Tomatoes. I don't know. There'd be some movie on there and you'd be like, oh, that's a bit naff. And there'd be a movie on and your mum be like, no, nah, it's actually really good. Check it out. And then you just find yourself like sucked in mm. to this, 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 like you're like, oh, whatever. This is this book. This book is like one of those Sunday afternoon romance, romance things. Like, you know, the romance is there, but it's also the 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 love and of t- of time as well so you've got this this um intense passion obviously and it's not um i wouldn't say it's like overtly smutty or dirty it's very restrained in terms of its de- depictions of sex um but you've got the passion of the youth but then also this um love that has matured with time and um it's so measured in that same respect. So it, it does have that. It's, it, I can't wait for it to become a movie. It's, it's, it already feels like a film. Is it Reese mm. Witherspoon got her fingers all oh over it? Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. If anyone manages to buy a copy without that blasted sticker, it's not even a sticker, it's printed on the cover oh, and I can't wow. get it off. Reese's book club. Yeah. I bought the book and I was like, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So, so the, uh, it. what yeah. about the, so we're, we're talking about love in different dimensions. Mm. And yes. an exploration of that. So yes. it's pretty sophisticated and meaty. Yeah, and it's for the length. I actually was um, – I was. there were points where I didn't even realise because it's also like the love of the, the mother for the daughters um, and because they're all coming of age um, and so they're extra excited to like learn about this because it the way they found out about Peter Duke – being her mum's boyfriend when they were teenagers was they were watching some kids movie and he was in it and Joe the their dad just goes oh your mum used to date him mm-hmm. and the kids immediately go what you know and they all freak out and it's just it just feels like it just feels like um, the family. Like my dad had a joke about my mum. Oh my god, my mum's listening to this. That um, Wilbur Wilde from Hey Hey It's Saturday <laughs> hit on her once at a bar, and uh, we have the cream of the crop. There. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we have just not gotten over that over the last fifty years. Um, so I could absolutely imagine any child, like who you know, could, he's who not could exactly resist lost. the hot sacks. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pluck a duck. Oh, oh mum, I'm sorry. I love you. I'm sorry. Um, but you know, so if if the I mythology had, around yeah, that, the mythology is around that, you know, and the idea of your parents existing before you, oh, well, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> yes, they are not real. They are not actual people. Um, and so, if I had that reaction over Wilbur Wilde, then you know, <laughs> Peter Duke is an Oscar winner. You know, he's in movies. He's mm. like this really big deal. Is there someone who he like you think of? you know, that you think he might be based on? I think he's based on, I think the love affair is based on Patti Smith and Sam Shepard. Okay. Because he's, because Sam Shepard was also a playwright and they actually talk about Sam Shepard. Like there's just, there's just something there. Oh my God. My, my mum just texted me. You're dead. (laughs) (laughs) Wilbur, text in. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, so I think it's a Sam Shepherdy kind of uh-huh. kind of love affair. Um, just because he, there's also I think Sam Shepherd also had some um, issues with alcohol and that kind of 
that rawness of theatre production and stage was something that was so synonymous with Sam Shepard. Like the fact that he he had very specific directions in his plays to be so raw mm. um, that it just really does give that that vibe. Um, the Robert Redford element is also there, but Robert Redford always seemed more controlled to me. It's the Sam Shepard roughness that's really that's really present did you me. cry or, or no is that no no i didn't i didn't cry but there was a moment i had to finish it i was going to a um uh i was on the train going to a um grand final day party and i was in the process of reading it and i just ignored my partner i'm like i have to know what happens at the mm. end of this and i was there was something that happened in the last couple of pages that was so well written and so shocking i literally gasped out loud and the whole train carriage was like what is wrong with this person <laughs> but um yeah i just i i couldn't put it down it was just the writing is just phenomenal she does not tell you things outright she trusts you and and just knows that you will work out where she's going. What is this it to which we refer? This it is Tom Lake by Anne Patchett. I reckon it's going to clean up a bunch of awards and be at the cinemas within two to three years. Um, very <laughs> special. Fair right, thank you. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Tom Ballard is a stand-up comedian who's performed at Montreal just for laughs, sold out seasons at Soho Theatre, been nominated for Best Show at Edinburgh Fringe and has previously taken out the Helpman Award for Best Comedy Performer. Now, the former co-host of Triple J Breakfast and titular star of ABC <laughs> TV's Tonightly is turning his satirical eye to the upcoming referendum in the show Yes, No, a Comedy Lecture. And to tell us about it, the ARI Award winner and high school ducks joins us now, Tom. <laughs> Welcome to Breakfasts. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Now, Sure. You can't help yourself, can you? There's a contested issue and you've got to get your grubby little comedy fingers all over it. Yes, we're having a referendum on a First Nations voice to Parliament. When are the white men going to speak in? When are they going to weigh in? They've written a show, they're selling tickets, they're profiting from this. And we're all having a good time. When did you realise that there was something comedically juicy in this moment? Well, this is crazy, but I had the idea for a one-person show about Australia referenda quite a while ago. It was like generally bubbling away in the back of my head. I've done a comedy lecture show about Australia's treatment of refugees, comedy gold before. <laughs> but So that format of like really you know, delving into a kind of sticky issue. And I knew a little bit about referenda and how bad we were at them and, and how the system in Australia sucked. And we've had 44 of these and we've only said yes eight times since Federation. I generally had that thought in the back of my head. And then like this one went ahead. I was like, well, if I'm going to do it ever, surely mm. it is the year of referendum when people are going to be vaguely more interested than before. And while the show is a little bit about the voice and the referendum question this year, it's also about that, that full history. So yeah. it just sort of felt right. And if you're delving into Australian history, there's laughs galore. Exactly. Which, <laughs> we're a very silly country. And I got a lot of funny pictures and put it into a show. Uh, have you read the Constitution? Do you know it back to front now? I skimmed. <laughs> I did year 11 legal studies. <laughs> I studied law at Monash for six weeks. I get the vibe. You know, Dad, I, get the vibe I can't believe you left that out of his intro. Yes, <laughs> yeah. My greatest qualification of all. Yeah, uh, it's a very boring document. Have you read the Constitution? Oh, uh, no, not in Darren full. carries a copy of it around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And someone shot you and it saved, stopped a bullet going into your heart. <laughs> exactly. Uh, where, it, where in Australia is the most difficult to persuade? What? In looking back throughout the history, what what state stands out as Ooh. having a prickly relationship with referenda? That's interesting. It's changed a lot. I believe, and I'm deferring to George Williams' book, People Power to the People, which is generally a, a really interesting history of a referenda in this country, if you're a nerd and you want to read that. Um, I believe for the first half of the 20th century, Western Australia said yes a lot, hmm. like almost to every single um, uh, proposal, basically. It was, a, it was a big yes state. And then things really did turn around in the, the second half of the century. And generally speaking, you've had the bigger, more populous, more progressive states on the eastern coasts voting yes for stuff that um, smaller states like uh, Tasmania, South Australia, WA, and occasionally Queensland have said, nah. Yeah. And because of the double majority provision, people might know, you need to get at least four out of the six states. So if three states, even if those three states represent lots and lots of people, say yes and the other three say no, then that proposal is going to go down. Yeah. And there's been five referenda in total where 
you've got a popular vote of uh, over 50%, so most Australians have voted yes to a proposal, but because it didn't meet the double majority requirement, it's been shut down. Goodness. Yes. Uh, and how do Territorians feel about their representation? They're, that's an issue? Yeah, so people may know the Territories don't play a role in the double majority requirement, so we don't care what they do in that respect. <laughs> And Territorians couldn't vote in referenda until 1977, okay? From when they were gazetted in 1911 and taken over by the uh, federal government, just the constitution said they had no provision for Territorians voting in referenda. So we had to have a referendum in 1977 to say, okay, Territorians, you can actually vote in these things now. Mm -hmm. Which is crazy because that means that all the First Nations people that are in the Northern Territory weren't able to vote in the 1967 Mm. referendum, which was about, you know, fully including and expunging racism out of the constitution. So it's a very normal country. It's all going very well. It's all going very well. Uh, And what about the AEC? Uh, Do they... uh, is what role do they play? Obviously, a major role. But have there ever been any controversies, or do they all run pretty smoothly? Oh, oh, I didn't really look into that. Oh, sorry. And I'm sure that they they do a great job. Yeah, yeah. And uh, all this purple sign stuff is quite weird, isn't it? But um, look, generally, you know, people people in Australia trust our electoral system. There hasn't been any disputed or stolen referenda. Yeah. <laughs> any kind of Trumpian yeah. moves. But no, I, well, I mean, I think the system itself is anti-democratic. I mean. The biggest one in 1977. There was this. It was a, it was a pretty boring reform. It was to make things uh, move things to a simultaneous election cycle. So, our constitution doesn't say that the House of Representatives and the Senate have to have the elections at the same time. We've been trying on multiple occasions to try and make that the case. In 1977, 62% of Australians voted yes to changing the constitution to reflect that, but because only three states said yes, it went down. So I think sort of. You know, obviously there's politics going on all the time and there are fear campaigns. The no campaign has a pretty good advantage. You can just say, no, changing the status quo will kill everyone. Mm-hmm. So there's that politics going on. But there was also this real structural problem which makes constitutional change so much harder, which then I think has a psychological effect and we all think it's the biggest deal in the world to change our constitution. Mm. But in fact, we should totally be able to do that, um, you know, based on the merits of proposal. But, yeah, being able to change and update the constitution is very good because... When it was originally written, I don't want to blow anyone's minds here, but there were some issues with the Constitution. The people who wrote them in the 1890s weren't the most uh, woke guys to go around. And they were all guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about your family when you weigh into all this political stuff? Is that changing? Have they come to terms with it? Are they on board? Is Christmas hard? What's the deal? <laughs> I think they just ignore me at this point. No, I have a very lovely... Broadly progressive family, probably uh, I'm quite sure that everyone in my family is voting yes. But I should do that thing, right? I'm, I am supporting yes and, and I'll be voting yes and I think the voice is a good thing and voting no will be bad. And I'm out on pre-poll today actually, sort of oh. handing out some flyers for the yes vote. Cool. But I haven't done that thing where uh, there is probably one relative that I should give a call or just check in mm. and say, hey, what do you think about this thing? Mm. Because maybe they're, pol- they're a bit older than me and maybe their politics are a little bit more conservative. Not that I might have much influence. She's not coming to the show. Um, But, yeah, I mean, people are saying, right, like one-to-one conversations with people in your life. And and I think there's something really good about that, like politicising every day. That's what we saw with the marriage equality vote. As as difficult as that was, people connecting with each other and talking about issues in a kind of semi-serious way, I think that's kind of good for democracy, you know. Was there a referendum that was very weird in particular or or a provision that you thought, oh, that strikes me, I'd... You know, I didn't think I cared about judges' retirement ages or anything like that. <laughs> I'm very glad we introduced a uh, compulsory retirement age in 1977, uh, the age of 70 for federal judges, which is very good because in the US, Supreme Court judges are uh, appointed for life, wow. even though their brains turn into smoothies. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry if that's ages, but I just think that's true. So I think that's a good rule. The weirdest referendum, hands down, and I knew a little... I'd heard about this once or twice, but researching the show, in 1951, Robert Menzies tried to get the Commonwealth power to legislate on communists and communism because the Liberal Party, we are all about freedom and freedom of thought and liberal values, wanted to basically make the Communist Party an illegal organisation, flush out communists from the trade union movement and the public service. And this was backed by the mainstream media. At one point, the yes vote was tra- tracking about 75% support, Eventually, thanks to the campaigning of the Labor Party and Doc Evatt, um, it got a yes vote of just 49%, which is still way too close, the idea of banning a, a political ideology, and three out of the six states said yes. 
So it was shut down, which is a very good thing, but that was that was bizarre. The mm. idea that the federal government would change the constitution to ban being left-wing uh, seemed a little bit much to me. Yeah. Uh, and as you approach these issues, do you, when you're reading heavy literature, is it a, are you like, well, I'm going to set myself this challenge, see if I can make this funny, or is it just inherently comedic to you? It's, look, it's, look there are a lot of jokes in the show about how boring this is. <laughs> And the um, benefit of using a slideshow over the PowerPoint presentation is that you can pretty easily cut to some funny images to get some cheap laughs. Um, I also work in a random ad hominem attack on conservatives. <laughs> That's the kind of comedy I do. I, I think, yeah, the, the, the fact that no one else is talking about this is kind of interesting to me, that I've kind of got my own lane here. No one else <laughs> is interested in talking about the intricacies of constitutional referenda. So uh, it's a real goldmine. But I suppose I, when I kept coming across stuff that I thought was really striking or that made me particularly angry about Australian history or the way our system is set up or when I learnt stuff that I didn't know, I, I enjoyed that. Mm. And sharing that with other people and making them laugh at the same time is, is fun to do. Was last night the first night of the show? Or? I did two editions of the show in Melbourne back during the Comedy Festival okay, back sure. then, yep. um, which was great fun. I've updated the show a fair bit because okay, there's great. been a lot of um, yes-no campaign nonsense uh, since then. So I've tried to work that into the show. And just rejigged it, and I think we approved it. I did a show in Canberra where um, PowerPoint had a heart attack. Oh, no. Uh, oh, poor Canberra. Oh, no. But, uh, you know, they're a warm-up for Melbourne, the greatest city in the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, that went well. So, yes, yeah, so I'm just doing five shows here and one show in Sydney next week before the actual referendum day. Okay. Do you ever survey the audience and sit, like can spot people who have been brought along by someone else <laughs> and we're not expecting it? Be prepared. Yeah. Yeah, if there are no voters. Yeah. Again, I had a bad joke last night. If there are any no voters who are coming to see a homosexual socialist comedian do a fringe show at Trades Hall, <laughs> then I have nothing but respect for you because it's going to be a long 65 minutes for you. But, um, yeah, I, I, hopefully there are people who know what they're getting and are prepared for the very long, nerdy interrogation of referenda. Outside of the referendum, is there anything, uh, are there any political figures that you've got your eye on that seem uh, juicy comedically? Or? Look, I still, I, still, I still find it difficult, maybe it's my more progressive audience, to make jokes about the Labor Party, even though I think the Labor Party sucks for a bunch of reasons. <laughs> um, but I think people, particularly after the election last year, were so relieved that the Conservatives were no longer in power that, that people were a little bit touchy. But hopefully as things gets worse, uh, it'll be better for my act. Yeah. I, 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 I've got to write a routine about the fact that Anthony Albanese is a landlord. Imagine, the, imagine your landlord being the Prime Minister and you turn on the news and you go, is that my landlord on the news running the country? I reckon there's some gold in that, so I'll, I'll come back to you on that. Uh, right. Well, yes, no, a comedy lecture is on at Festival Hub, Trades Hall. Solidarity Hall is part of Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's on until the 8th, so you've only got a few nights, is that right? Yes, until Sunday night, uh, yeah, 7.30pm. Beautiful. Uh, Tom Ballard, jump online to the Melbourne Fringe Festival website to check it out. And is there anything else we want can direct people towards? Um, you know, just uh, give to charity. <laughs> Uh, you know, adopt a dog. Yeah. Uh, follow Reach out me on to social media. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just come to the show. Beautiful. Yes, no, a comedy lecture. Tom Ballard. Thanks, mate. Thanks, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Tan Trong is a second-generation fruiterer with a background as a produce importer and exporter, a national supermarket fruit buyer, leading distributor of fruit and vegetables from Asia, and now author. The Fruit Nerd, Don't Buy Fruit and Veg Without Me, is billed as a life-changing lowdown on how to choose, prep and cook with amazing produce. And to tell us about it, the titular Fruit Nerd joins us now. Tan, welcome to Breakfasters. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with what you brought in and how it folds into your passion for fruit. What did we just sample? You just sampled an autumn moon pear. And as we know, it's been a full moon. It's been the mid-autumn festival. And I brought it to you and I've cut it up in the way that my mum would cut it for you um, and for me. But the autumn moon pear and brown nashis in general are celebrated in Asian culture, especially with the coming harvest. Um, in Korea, it's called chuseok. And they chop the tops off the nashi to allow their ancestral spirits to come celebrate the fruit and then they, they eat and divulge in it. Mm. What makes it so strikingly delicious, do you think? Well, it's actually a Japanese developed variety. It's not GMO, it's just bred through grafting. 
Um, and they've basically taken the best traits. So it's very crunchy, it's very juicy, and it's extremely sweet. Mm, it definitely is. It's a very it's a <laughs> breakfast fruit, that's for sure. It's a breakfast <laughs> fruit. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, now, breakfast radio hosts tend to get up early, but maybe nothing compared to fruiterers. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I have just come from work. We have been up really early. And, you know, I, I like to think that, you know, for my parents, they, they became fruiterers because my father was really good at it. And it made it made us financially viable because as immigrants, you know, we came with nothing. But you know, they they work so hard so that we could have a higher education that they could never have, so that we could be sitting behind a desk, not doing hard labor. But I really want my father and fruiterers to know that it is a very honourable profession to be a fruiterer because we are nourishing people. And even though people might think that all we do is stock shelves. It's not all we do. We have to turn over stock. We watch as produce whittles from morning to night, the leafy veg whittle. We see apples get wrinkly. We see bananas get black from yellow. So there's so much that we do to prolong fruit and veg, to prevent food waste, to ensure that consumers are having the best eating experience that they can get. So, mm. yeah, I just want to make – I really want to make my, my, my family proud. And what else informs your evangelising? What What is Australia's relationship with fruit that you think you'd like to get in and meddle with? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, Dan. Uh, in the In the surmising of our industry – I can distill it down to a few moments in time. And I think in the early 2000s when John Howard announced that fruit and veg would be GSD-free, it is a right to have fruit and veg. One thing that happened from that event is that fruit and veg became very commoditized. It became something that should be very cheap. And certainly I don't see it that way. But also, for many different reasons, we have over-relied on our senses, our eyes. And, and in that, we have betrayed ourselves because we are no longer looking for fruit and veg that tastes good, but that looks good. And so my book, Don't Buy Fruit and Veg Without Me, hopes to achieve what we all have had once in our lives, which is that nostalgic fruit and veg moment where it's so delicious, like this nashi or the peach that just dribbles down your hand and is just really aromatic. I want people to have those experiences every day. So there is tips to how to select, how to store, to, to prevent food waste, but also to make sure that we ripen pack and pairs to that optimal moment where they're starting to get soft, but they're still crunchy and they're juicy and they're sweet, but they're not hard. So uh, my book goes through those, those uh, steps, but also my journey in terms of the cultural ways that we see fruit, like this nashi pear, like how uh, the Italians might see artichokes as the coming of, you know, the different methods, whether it's the, the way to deep fried or whatnot. There are so many different stories, which I think in the, Australian psyche of fruit and veg becoming commoditized, we have lost that. And mm. so I want to bring that back, but I want to empower consumers to know what to look for when they're at the shops. And what do you think we're missing as consumers? I know that's a big question, but there are a few things that spring to mind straight off the top of your head. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll ask you a question now. Mm -hmm. um, where, where The last time that you shopped for fruit and veg, mm. um, did you have an autopilot mode where you just picked up the fruit and veg or did you have almost like a paralysis moment where you're like, which one do I choose? Well, actually, I was thinking about asking you this because the last produce I bought was avocados mm -hmm. and I used the stickers. It was at a big chain oh. and it was eat now. And I was like, right. oh, all right, I'm, I'm eating these today. Mm. That's Tell great. Can we trust the stickers? <laughs> <laughs> when were the stickers? Put on. Yeah. <laughs> but look, uh, your, to your question, mm -hmm. um, we, I want people to use all their senses and I want to equip them with the knowledge. You know, mm -hmm. we go through school, but we don't go through school learning about the fundamentals of how we should cook, what is nutritious, mm -hmm. how to pick good tasting fruit and veg and why that might be better for you. Um, and so I believe that if as fruiterers, as farmers, as our industry, if we can empower people with the knowledge to pick better tasting fruit, understand how fruit moves and changes as it is a living body, it's a living thing, we'll be better at preventing food waste, we'll be, pre we'll be better at choosing produce that will be more tasty so that we don't eat 
a chocolate bar, we go for that really, really juicy pineapple because it's not sour, but it's, you know, it's crossed that sour sweet mark. Um, and it's about the knowledge, but using that knowledge to, um, to empower consumers to have better eating experiences. And that's what I'm all about. So I hope the book can be a little yeah. bit of a clippy moment for people. Did you, you, grew up, you grew up with this, like, so it's in your, in your bones, in your blood, but did you learn a lot in the process of making this book? Did you have anything left to learn? I've always got so much to learn. I I always say that I'm the keenest student um, and, yes, I did learn so much. I mean, I've been fortunate to have a plethora of the most amazing fruiterers to bounce back on, to get and gain knowledge from, but also farmers. My father has been in the industry for for decades and you know I used to work for a major supermarket chain so I understand how the back end of the system works but you know I've reached out to a lot of researchers from the Department of Agriculture, Research Victoria, the CSIRO um, because I like to meld both the practical and the scientific together and when we can bring those two together it really makes sense in terms of trying to explain a tip like for instance there may be a myth about what happens when you tap a watermelon. Um, and there is a commonality between a lot of fruits, and that's what I found too. So a tip from this fruit might help that fruit. So with watermelons, um, I've used a similar concept with the sound of a durian with the sound of a watermelon. So when you tap a watermelon, if it sounds different, like a drum, or if it sounds flat, if you can explain it scientifically, it's no longer about is it true or not? It's actually fact. And so if you tap a watermelon and there's a crack in the watermelon, it absorbs the sound, mm-hmm. right? If the watermelon has been dropped and it's bruised, it will also absorb the sound. So a bruised watermelon is not something that we all want. It's, it's a non-preferable texture. So by understanding that science of, okay, that's what's happening with the watermelon inside and when I listen to the sound, if I hear that, this is what happens – it can better inform us to make better decisions about fruit and veg. And that's what I'm all about. Let's dip into some more even specific examples in the book of your explorations. And you've got a lot of connections and so you've dipped into pomegranates. Now, uh, pomegranates is one of my favourite fruit, but I've never really quite known how to cut them. Mm-hmm. But you've <laughs> solved that for us. Well, it's the, the, the mess-free way and, you know, as a consumer first and second generation wholesale fruiterer, I took it upon myself to, you know, five to ten years ago to think about all the things that we sell um, in our industry. And if I couldn't do it myself, then I'm not the best fruiter that I can be. And so I've spent years cutting and breaking down pomegranates to figure out the best, even the best way to whack the pomegranate. Because, yes, there's a method in cutting it, and it is in the book, Um and um, for those who, uh, listeners out there who don't know, please don't chop the pomegranate in half. All of the, the, the segment walls will trap all of those ruby gems and you'll find it so hard to individually pick out. Please don't do that. <laughs> so how are we doing it? I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so if you look at the shape of a pomegranate, it's most commonly in a star shape, mm-hmm. which is it's either hexagonal or um, pentagonal. And so you run your knife, you score the lines where the edges are, and with the flowering bottom, you can stick your finger in and pop that flat pot part off. And when you do that, you expose almost a massive entry. And if you then score the sides, break it apart, you've basically broken Pandora's box in a way. Um, you've broken all the segment walls. Like, just think about breaking all of the, the thin um, membranes of an orange out and you just get the pulp. That's what you do with the pomegranate. But the second part of it is how you whack the pomegranate because if you're whacking it face down but also with the flat part of a spatula, you will get some part of the arils or gems out. But if you hit it with the, the, edge. Uh, the edge side and you do it progressively, you'll almost get most of the ruby gems out within say 10 seconds of one side and so uh yeah it's a bit technical i was an analyst previously i am the fruit nerd and that's probably why i take so much detail and pride I love into it. all this <laughs> yeah and there's pictorial evidence in the book as well yeah, the pictures that the pictures are stunning just you um said how you've you picked every single piece of fruit that's photographed in this book is that right that's right i mean with with so many 
cookbooks. They are fantastic and the stylists are fantastic. But this is a book from a fruiterer. And every single piece of fruit has been chosen by myself because it's a piece of fruit that I would choose or one that I want to help consumers understand that this is what they should be looking out for. Mm. Um, And so uh, what you're actually really getting is not just a beautiful photo of a of a fruit, but you're looking at also ones that aren't the best. And that's what, as a fruiterer, we see every day. And that's as a fruiterer, the worst thing that I hate most is food waste because mm. that's what we try to prevent most, right? We're, we're the agents of making sure the fruit and veg, the perishable product, moves and finds a home and gets eaten. So mm. that's what really what I want to try and get out of the book. Well, we've been speaking about The Fruit Nerd. Uh, Don't buy fruit and veg without me. It's out via Plum? Yeah, Um, Plum. uh, There there is a lot of different distributors. Um, You can find it at most good bookstores and some of the the chains and also online. And, of course, you can find The Fruit Nerd on Instagram at (laughs) The Fruit Nerd. Uh, Tantrong, great pleasure to meet you and congratulations. Thank you so much. Triple R. Globetrotting Twitcher, Sean Dooley's here to talk birds. Morning, Sean. Good morning, one and all. And Where have you been? I've yeah, I've just come back from Japan, which was um, which was actually not a very birdy place. Oh. So I, I was a bit like on edge. <laughs> it was um, it, it was interesting. Uh, bec- I mean, it is uh, actually camp like a lot of Japan that they, they've protected their forests and things like that, but that's not the areas we were we were at and it was really interesting being in Japanese cities particularly Tokyo which are so efficient and and clean that there's not much rubbish around so you've just got this big urban area with with no greenery and then you also don't have any rubbish for the scavengers Mm -hmm. so there's very few even pigeons or crows they are there but they're not really in the streets and it it was almost a bit disconcerting not having birdsong around and it, it, it sort of coming into like October is like bird month in Australia. This is, you know, the the busiest and happiest time of the year for, for us bird nerds because it's you've got migration, you've got uh, breeding season where the birds are singing and uh, we have events like at the moment, the um, you know, we've, we've got the Aussie bird count coming up in a couple of weeks and at uh, today is the final day of voting for the Bird of the Year poll that okay. BirdLife Australia and The Guardian are running. So sort of birds are sort of everywhere and it's the time to sit back and appreciate them. Mm. And to be in this landscape of like Tokyo, 14 million people sort of all seemingly next to you at the time and and not really have just that background noise of birds, it was, uh, it was kind of an uncanny feeling for, mm. for somebody who even in Melbourne, you know, big city, four or five million people, whatever we are, you can be in the centre of Melbourne and there's peregrine falcons flying over, there's sulphur-crested cockatoos, there's not just the the pigeons and the sparrows. In fact, there's fewer sparrows than there's ever been around. But there's we're really lucky here um, that we have these incredible birds. And every year, this is the 10th... Aussie bird count coming up and every year the rainbow lorikeet is the most commonly counted bird across Australian cities and they are just the most gaudy, ridiculously coloured birds and they're literally our most common bird that, that people see every day. So we are kind of pretty pretty fortunate here to, to still have some element of nature that's in our face every mm. day. Mm. Yeah, that is such a good perspective. Can live like in a city, but it, you know, doesn't take much to get, you know, into nature and, and mm. hear the birds. Can I ask, going back to Japan quickly, did you manage to do any twitching over there? Did you see anything of note? I, it was, I didn't, it wasn't really that sort of holiday, but okay. I did, I did sneak away one day to, uh, the, the, the thing in Japan is they, when they do nature, they do it really well. They have that sort of culture of forest bathing and respect for nature from their sort of Shinto past, I guess. And and there's a place in Tokyo down near the airport, one of the airports called the Tokyo Wild Bird Park. And it's like, like everything uh, that they do, if we're going to do a wild bird park, let's do it really efficiently. And they managed to sort of, it's actually on a really tiny bit of land. 
uh, reclaimed land just opposite the airport, but they, they've managed to sort of fold it origami-like into... <laughs> so you feel like you're in the middle of forest and um, there, there's a bit of... There's a freshwater wetland and a, a bit of a tidal estuary and, and it's actually really narrow, but it sort of folds in upon itself in a, in a sense and, if, and there's lots of trees around. And that had lots of birds and was great. And, and places like the Meiji Shrine, I'd seen that it was a garden that was planted in the mid-1800s, but it's not just a garden like you'd expect, you know, Fitzroy Gardens or something. It's actually a fully-fledged forest that they've recreated, a 150-year-old forest, which is really incredible. So there were occasional, like, um, you know, glimpses of birds here and mm. there. Is the field of dreamish, if you build it, they will come in a park like this? Or is there any guarantee that it gets populated? It, um, it, it I found it fascinating because certainly with wetlands, you know, if, if you build it, they will come because water birds, especially in Australia, but they move around all the time in this boom and bust sort of country. They're always looking to find... A, a bit of water that they can that they can feed in, and so if you build a wetland in the middle of a desert, you'll get birds turning up. If you build it in the middle of the city, you'll get birds showing up. With sort of forest and woodland and grassland types of things, the the big issue is the the connectivity. So, and, and this this forest in the Meiji Shrine around the Meiji Shrine is, is incredible, and it did have. Uh, good numbers of birds, but not a huge variety of birds. And I do wonder that the birds that are there, whether they were sort of when when this park was developed in the 1850s, 1860s, whether Tokyo was far more sort of rural and <clears throat> and there were woodlands and things, and um, and the birds were able to come in. Whereas if you built that park today, there, there's just you know this inhospitable concrete jungle that those small birds have got to get to. And this is what we find in Australia is that we we have great parks, but um, the, if they're not connected to areas of bush, and and this is where the Yarra is so important. I was, I was actually out um, doing a podcast for the Guardian for Bird of the Year with Harry Sadler, who's written a book called Clear Flowing Yarra, and we were out with Harry, who's been monitoring a pair of powerful owls, which are within probably five kilometres of the city, and they're nesting there. This, this these magnificent owls. They're terrifying. Like, yeah, absolutely. They eat chihuahuas. Yeah, <laughs> there's footage of one. There's there's a pair. I coincidentally been in Sydney the week before and been out to the Sydney Botanic Gardens and checked out a nesting pair there. And then there's footage online of the male powerful owl attacking a greyhound <gasps> oh, because goodness. it got too close to the nest. And oh. so they are. They're magnificent kind of scary beasts, but they're only there because we have the Yarra and... And it's large trees that that connect it up with the with the mountain ranges and stuff, and we so we have those connections. But what we're seeing in these isolated parks that they're, they're, they're refuges, but they're also isolated from other similar places. And um, we're actually seeing birds disappearing. And this is something we we've noticed in the Aussie bird count, confirming that we're even within the ten years. This is the tenth year coming up that small birds in particular are losing out. We're still... These parks, the, the, the our, our sort of, you know, where, where we still have quarter-acre blocks with, with gum trees and, and, and greenery in our cities, far more than we get in places like Tokyo, we still get birds, we, but we only... As with any property um, boom, you, you get a few winners and a hell of a lot of uh, people ending up homeless. And that's what's happening in in the bird world. We've got the winners like the noisy miners and the magpies and the rainbow lorikeets. But a lot of the smaller birds that need sort of dense gardens, shrubbery, that sort of stuff, they don't have places to hide from these bigger, more aggressive birds. They don't have the ability to connect up with, um, with other similar patches. And the more that we develop, the more even that the sort of urban infill the more we tidy up our urban inner urban areas and we build, you know, duplexes and, and um, you know, medium density, high density housing is really important. But if it doesn't have that habitat structure around it, the gardens, the those sorts of things, people miss out, but birds miss out as well. And it's a feedback loop because there is studies showing that 
people's happiness is really intimately tied to nature and particularly birdsong. Mm. The more birds that you have in your area, a study showed, um, if, if for 10 more species that are calling in an area, this study in Europe showed, the happiness index was was up as if you had were in an area that had an average median or median income of ten thousand dollars more. So, like you know, mm. money can't can buy you happiness to a certain degree, but birdsong definitely buys you happiness. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like birdsong is one of those things is that maybe you wouldn't notice it until it wasn't there. Like similar mm. to your experience in Tokyo, being like, oh, something's not quite right. Yeah, yeah, and it's something that we we don't necessarily. Re- do notice and what what I found really fascinating in Tokyo was that the when I on the first day we caught the red eye and I was a bit sort of you know discombobulated we're going from train to train to get to our uh, accommodation and every time I got off at a station I could hear birdsong and I was thinking this this place is great there's birds everywhere but what it actually is at the stations they use bird sounds apparently to help blind people know which station they're at and so they each station has a sort of the the different stations along the line will have a different signature and some will have a cuckoo call and some will have um what what to me sounded like the the brown-headed bulbul which is a one of the few common urban birds in tokyo and it was sort of like oh my god they're actually having to you know simulate natural sounds uh to, to, to populate the oral soundscape of, of the city. Extraordinary. Is, uh, yeah. Um, you mentioned polling closing today and associated with birdsong. Do you think Collingwood's win is going to have an effect? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Maybe uh, hearing me clear my throat and sounding a bit more husky than usual, I, yeah, certainly my uh, my bird song is uh, has been affected. By yeah, another the match one. On They're Saturday. everywhere. They walk on support. Someone and yet I have all my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Someone on the text line just talking about um, build it and they will come. Janet said that uh, you'll be pleased to know that silver eyes and thornbills have returned to her garden because of planting shrubs. Oh, brilliant, like mm. brilliant. The, the silver. In the silver eye, that's fantastic, Janet, because the silver eye is one bird that we have picked up in the Aussie bird count that has that has declined um, across every Australian city. Even mm-hmm. things like willy wagtails, we've we've noticed a definite decline, except for Perth, where they're doing well, and we think that might be because Perth doesn't have the noisy miner, which is taking over our cities, doing really successfully well. That's the the native honey eater that. Um, that people often mistake for the Indian miner. There is a question if you can limit or how can you limit the impact of noisy miners on other native species? Yeah, the, they like open woodlands. That's their natural habitat. And what we've created in our agricultural landscapes and also in the suburbs, especially with that quarter-acre block formula, where you have one or two trees, usually eucalypts, and some some grass, that's perfect for noisy miners. They like it open. So... If you do things like Janet has done in Preston and plant dense uh, undergrowth plants and dense sort of shrubbery, you're providing not just food and shelter for the for the smaller birds, but you're also providing a refuge for them from the noisy miners, which tend to drive out any bird smaller than a magpie. They'll mm-hmm. have a crack, even if they're not direct competitors. They're just hardwired to exclude other birds from their territory, so... That's uh, that. That's we can't really cull them in the cities, um, you know, and you wouldn't really want to. They're a native species, but they are becoming hyper abundant, and so we need to think of these things like at a landscape level and think, well, how in if if you've just got one Janet on the block who's planting, <laughs> um, then you know that might not make that much difference. But if you've got ten on your block that are planting, and those gardens can interconnect, and the birds can move between them then that's how you bring the birds back. All right. Uh, can you just direct us where to go on this final day of polling? Yeah, if you go to The Guardian, the, the it's down to the final 10, um, as if this country needed more divisive votes. <laughs> but it seems at, at the moment the, the the ones that the birds have been doing really well are the tawny frogmouth, uh, eternal bridesmaid in this competition. But this year it's, <laughs> it's streaking ahead, but it's getting a really strong challenge from the critically endangered swift parrot which is great to see so many people thinking about this bird which recent research has shown may well be extinct in the next 10 years Mm. and that is a bird that does turn up in the suburbs 
uh, feeding in eucalypt trees, not at this time of year in Melbourne, but that they'll be back in Hobart at the moment. So, yeah, get on board and, and vote. It's your last chance today, people. All right. For Feature Creatures from BirdLife Australia, Sean Dooley, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. I went for a walk with a friend over the weekend, a bit of a stroll, and then we stopped to get a coffee. And I was like, I'll grab it. What's your coffee order? And she said, oh, don't worry about it. I've got a really embarrassing coffee order. Shame. Yeah, she was ashamed. I said, don't be silly. It's fine. It's fine. Tell me what it is. And then the coffee order, I'll give it to you, was uh, a decaf, double ristretto, Soy flat white. <laughs> that was it. And I said, don't worry. It's fine. Not a big deal. No need to be ashamed. You're a good friend. I'm a fantastic friend. And I walked in and I ordered. No worries. And I came out and I go, do you know what I've done? I go, I've rejigged your order. You're saying it in the wrong order. I go, this is better. This is what I did. I said, you order a soy flat white. Double ristretto, decaf. Oh, I think it's – oh, okay. So I go – I feel like it just minimise the pain of it all. So I thought why it's pretty standard. So standard. you put that at the top. Exactly. It's basically on the menu. Mm. Yeah, it's basically – it's the core, you know, foundations of the beverage. It's the beverage. The soy flat white, double ristretto, that's your little flourish. Mm. That's it. That's your little thing. And then you go decaf right at the end. You don't don't forget that and my it's decaf, and then look at them in the eye, and and just go thank you and pay, <laughs> <laughs> and and I go it's totally fine. What reaction did you get when you ordered that? She goes okay, thanks. No, no, from the staff. <gasps> oh yeah, fine. I mean they were a very friendly staff there, but I really do feel like the order made a difference. It's like well, she's leading <clears throat> with what it's not, isn't it? Mm. Exactly. Yeah, she's leading with what it's not. And then I was trying to look at other beverages as well. I used to try and do that when I, working for people, when I would work in cafes a lot. And just like, oh, do you know what? This is how you can simplify it. Mm. Because, yeah, sometimes do focus on what they don't want rather than what they do want. And I was trying to be like, okay, can you apply this kind of structure to all coffee orders? Like, do you start with the milk? Then you go, so it's a skinny latte. Not necessarily. I think it depends on the sound of the words and what you're dealing with. Because mm. double ristretto is like a big mouthful. Mm. I thought essentially it's... Is that, does that mean it's coming with an instrument or something? Or what is it? Exactly. It's, it's a flute. <laughs> It's a small flourish. Yeah. <laughs> it means that a waiter will play you a small tune when they give you the coffee. Mm. Uh, it's just strong, less water. Ristretto restricted. And so, so it's, if like, it's double. So if you have a double espresso, it's strong, but there's a lot of water. Ristretto just means it's stronger, more concentrated. So it's it's not a tautology, we're saying. So if no. you just throw in ristretto, it's not doing the work of saying double ristretto. No, because you're getting two of those shots. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, double. So double. So double shot, but you're only getting the top of it, essentially. Okay, is what they're what they're saying. But I kind of arrived at the fact it, the fact it's like it's the same as kind of giving bad news to someone. Like you yeah. want to plan what you want to say. You want to the sandwich. Yeah, the what? Well, you, like a, it's like when you give Com- feedback, the compliment sandwich. <laughs> yeah. So you give say something nice. <laughs> Give the bad feedback and then end with something nice. Yeah. You do it in teaching all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, the ordering of the information, that's true. And then also as well being prepared. Mm. So make sure you know what you're saying when you get to the counter, especially if there's a line. It was a busy Saturday, big weekend, lots going on. Be prepared. Look look them in the eye. Also, your tone's important. Yeah, like just, yep, this is what I'm having. So don't be apologetic. Exactly. Don't be apologetic. Be confident. Don't go in and say, oh, this is annoying. This is annoying, the eye roll. Yeah, just go, this is it. Deliver it. Look them in the eye. Not too much though. That's weird. (laughs) It's still (laughs) a business exchange. You can blink. You can blink, have your card ready (laughs) and then let them absorb it. Mm. Say thank you and tap and move out. Move out. Yeah, because I do it. I really try and avoid messing too much with orders but one place I always do it is McDonald's because I'm a vegetarian I but I love the burgers and I love their mustard and sauce and everything so I'll get cheeseburgers with no patty with the hash brown 
Instead of the patty. Yeah. Oh, my God, genius. Sometimes I just do it myself. I just order the chips on the side. But if I'm feeling like, no, they can do it for me. It's nice and hot when they do the hash brown. Yeah, I'm just like, I just go in confident. I'm like, I'll just have a cheeseburger, please. And I looked him in the eye and they go, without the beef patty, with, um, what's it called? A hash brown and some lettuce. <laughs> and they fix that up for you. Yes. And oh it's always God. fresh and hot and it's the delicious. <laughs> the service is incredible. I Honestly, you should all try it. It's fantastic. It's a beautiful snack. I didn't realise um, it was so customisable. Oh, yeah. It, it sounds like baby food. It's a little bit like... Oh, <laughs> no, there's a real crunch. A baby could not chew one no. of those hash browns. <laughs> <laughs> and the lettuce. Oh, it's lovely. I really recommend you try it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just think that that's maybe when, one of my love languages is rejigging people's orders for them or helping them make an efficient order. And just the delivery of information I mm. think is important. Do people go through phases of uh, being incredibly annoying with orders like this and then they get over it? Or is this locked in? Mm. Do you think this double vibrato uh, concoction with the, <laughs> with the soy and the song the is a... Uh, <laughs> yeah, with is, the jazz. Do you think it's... Uh, and I, I really appreciate and admire the just foregoing the coffee... Uh, off yeah. Australia, like just don't worry about it. Yeah, mm. just going. No, I'll go home and have a Macona. <laughs> and what if she just had a decaf soy? Yeah, what, like yeah, that's definitely. Look, it's definitely an option. So this is she likes the taste of strong coffee, but she doesn't like the caffeine. Yes, I guess so. I get the sense this is locked in for her. Mm. This has been years in the it making. Sounds this cultivated. Coffee. Yeah, it sounds like it's been happening piece by piece, and now she's there. There's definitely some shame attached to it. Definitely a coffee with that comes with stigma. She's aware of that, but she's she's forging down the path. Because I, I was on a, a story on the nightly news yeah. for on one occasion, and I made the mistake of ordering a coffee in front of the journalist, and they included it in the story. <laughs> And it, I think it was like an extra hot mocha or something. <gasps> yes! And it was like used as evidence of of shameful conduct. <laughs> We're being an immature. Yeah. Shame. And here we have a man who's never ordered a coffee before. <laughs> First <Obviously>. time to Melbourne. <laughs> Obviously not from Melbourne. Uh, see, but I, I, any opportunity I'll get, I have such great respect for mocha drinkers. Because I think that secretly we all want to be ordering mochas. It's like that's chocolate in a coffee. That's delicious. Like oh. mix that in and I feel like a lot of people maybe just get swayed with what's trendy or single origin. But it's like, oh, have a mocha. Have a mocha. You have a little – give yourself a little sweet treat. A little a Everybody little sweet treat. Everybody worry. Don't We won't be yucking anyone's yum. Don't worry, Mon. And it's just like that is how – that's their morning beverage. It's like imagine what it escalates to in the evening. Well, I used to work uh, – My one of my first jobs when I was in high school was at Gloria Jean's coffee yes, chain. Yes, me too. Was it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a long life. Yes. A lifelong mocker. Uh, yeah. But it would amaze me that um, people would come in and start their day with like an extra large <laughs> caramel latte with whipped cream on top. Oh, I know. And I'd think that like – Yeah. How are you – what are you doing by midday? Midday, but every day you'd see them that come in and you know ready for work. Yeah, hey, it's so, a hot milkshake. You know they do it in Paris and France. It's <laughs> the Gloria Jean caramel triple vibrato lattes <laughs> cultured. Absolutely, uh, but the, I think it's the it's the marshmallow that if, if if they serve a marshmallow, it's like all right. I know this is a childish order, but there's no need to rub it in. Oh uh, yeah, with the mocha, <laughs> you're, like, you're humiliating me. <laughs> Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website. <laughs>